Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another incredible episode of Market Impact Insights. The philosophy of this podcast is that in business, it's all about making a positive impact every day. And you could actually extend that uh, to in life. Uh, It's about making a positive impact. And something that's very important for us to continue to make this podcast even better is getting continuous feedback from you in terms of what you like and how we can continue to make it better. Please go out, rate, and review. Give us the gift of feedback so it can continue to make this even better. And today we're going to explore an aspect of leadership that is all around being versatile, uh, really being able to apply sound leadership, exceptional leadership in a variety of different environments, whether it be public sector, government, moving into private sector. And we have a guest today in Paul Rupert that has this unique experience having spanned both of those worlds. Paul is a veteran communication platform as a service and mobile services executive. He's a strategy consultant. He holds two tech patents that enable global text messaging. So I think I can thank him then for that volume of text messaging that I'm uh, that I'm getting all the time. He has career experience, as I said, in both the private and public sectors, and he's applied a range of multidisciplinary skills And he's exercised those at the highest level in both of those worlds, from corporate boardrooms all the way to the White House. He's generated over $400 in direct sales and is a skilled cross-border negotiator. So he has a global perspective, along with being that technology innovator. And he's a strategic partnership driver with more than two decades leading global commercial product marketing teams, and merger and acquisition deals in business-to-business software-as-a-service sales. So really broad background, has that global perspective. He's the president of Global Point View Limited, a strategy consulting firm providing insights to technology companies that are seeking guidance on focus, strategies, and plans. It's all about scaling. It's all about effective partnerships and strategic acquisitions. And just a sampling of some of the clients Paul has worked with, you've probably heard of them, Facebook, MasterCard, to name a few. So with that as an intro, Paul, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Hello, Dan. Uh, Great to be here. Um, Thank you for the the introduction. Um, Very gracious uh, with those kind words. Uh, I'm going to have to live up to the intro now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Paul, you have such an interesting background and you know, as I mentioned, it, it's really been this uh, whole uh, journey, and it spanned the spectrum from working at the highest levels in government uh, all the way into high impact in the private sector. And you have described yourself as an ambidextrous executive. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. So ambidextrous, you know, you can hit from the left or hit from the right relative to a baseball analogy. Um, I first started thinking about this some years ago. Uh, I have both experience in the private sector over the last now 25 years, primarily in the mobile technology world. 
as well as having spent a dozen years uh, right out of college in the public sector. And the public sector broadly defined like many of both parties who help run the system and make the system work that we are involved in, in terms of uh, a democracy, American democracy. You have experience in running political campaigns. You also have experience as being a policy advisor. Uh, as you learn more and grow in your gravity, if you will, because of your experience, uh, as well as being involved in uh, legislative negotiations, as perhaps in my case, a legislative assistant, my arc of development literally came in as an opportunity working for a United States senator, helping write the letters that, you know, the responses to correspondence. It was literally called a legislative correspondent. And then I moved into being a legislative assistant. And then the arc of development moved into running political campaigns after being trained by the Republican National Committee to do that. And um, eventually getting involved in economic policy development in rural and urban areas, utilizing tax abatements and tax policy to help guide that. It was called the Enterprise Zones, which is based on a concept from the UK with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. I was literally known as the Zone Czar uh, to a cabinet secretary that I worked for, a guy named Jack Kemp. And then uh, later on, again, being involved in uh, campaign management and political advance work, which was the coolest job I've ever held, but that's an entirely different conversation. Uh, and then eventually, uh, as yeah, I was a technology trade association lobbyist as well, and then eventually I decided I wanted to get out of that into the private sector. And I had a completely different career, again, on a global basis. I had a little bit of a uh, genetic predisposition. I happened to be half French. By the time that I was 16, I'd spent a lot of time in Europe with my French mother and my French-based family traveling across the continent. So I had a different perspective than um, most suburban kids in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I grew up. So that's the ambidextrous aspects. And then compounding that uh, ambidextrous perspective, even in my own space, you mentioned uh, I'm very active in a, a very fast-growing element of mobile telecommunications called cons uh, Customer Platform as a Service, which essentially is combining different types of mobile channels uh, that could be voice, that could be text, that could be what's called over-the-top communications like with WhatsApp. It can also include legacy uh, functionality with text, excuse me, with email, as well as new functionality relative to artificial intelligence and chatbots. And so there's a segment of the mm -hmm. industry that is coalescing around this idea of multi-channel platforms so that consumers, you and I, will be able to choose the right message at the right time using the right platform of those that I outlined. So there too, that's an ambidextrous aspect of uh, the space. And last piece, I've been both senior executive in companies that were growing fast, whether they were startups, scale-ups, or global enterprises. But I've also been in um, these smaller, smaller startups, you know, literally cockroach startups that we were able to build out over time. So as one boss of mine said, you know, you've got all the polish and process of being inside AT&T or the federal government, but you also have all the agility and um, the grit 
to be able to survive and worry about making payroll in 60 days yeah. <laughs> that happens inside a startup. So, Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. And, and going back to when you made that decision, Paul, to make the transition and go over to the private sector, how challenging was that, right? Because it is, a, it is I'm sure there's some things that tra- were transferable based on your experience, but there had to be a bit of a, at least initially, right? It was just a very different Absolutely. dynamic there. Yeah. Very astute observation on your part. Yeah. You know, you get into a certain orbit around a certain planet that the planet is a pretty big size and it's tough to be able to break out of that orbit, which was the things that I was facing. Uh, I wanted to get out of the political world because it was very peripatetic, uh, meaning up and down, very lumpy as people would describe it from a, a business perspective. And um, I didn't see myself, I got into the political world because I had aspirations of running for office myself and then kind of disabused me, myself of that a little bit on, but still found it very challenging and intellectually enriching, not necessarily financially enriching. And there came a point in my life after my son was born, who's now 26, 27, I realized I wanted to move into the private sector and be able to utilize these same skills. Mm-hmm. And they're completely transferable. I mean, if you think about it, which I used to think about uh, and even walk into an interview prepared to be able to make the argument, um, starting a company is no different than starting a political campaign. And I would even argue that it's probably more difficult in the political context or in the public sector than it is in the private sector, primarily because in the public sector, you are essentially trying to advocate something conceptual. But at least in the private sector, you are discussing something that is concrete and the concrete could be a service or the concrete could be a product could be a thing. Granted, you could be also talking about strategy, but the strategy in the context of a commercial enterprise is you're, being an ex- you're exchanging something fungible, uh, meaning money for something. And in the public sector, you're really focusing on what, is, what constitutes the public good. You know, the best example of that is why do people in Manhattan pay taxes so that uh, other people could be going to visit um, you know, Big Sur in California, mm-hmm. national parks, yeah. things of that nature, or the public good of defense, et cetera. So the reality of the structuring of that is very similar. You've got to go off and find financing. You've got to be able to have a sense of being able to move from zero to one in a startup. And you have to have that same sense of objectives relative to moving from zero to one in the, uh, the public sector. So very similar. And that was essentially my argument in making that jump from one to the area, from one to the other. And then I had a uh, an advantage um, a, that was just time and luck. Uh, I got pulled into mobile telephony at its inception mm-hmm. at the early stages of it in the United States. Uh, and there too, I had an ambidextrous advantage because here I come being brought in to do business development and you don't really need to be technologically trained to go to, let's say, the Beverly Hills Hotel or United Airlines and say, we'd like to do a co-marketing partnership with you where we will provide your guests uh, or your your, um, flyers with a coupon or means to be able to have a one-day rental for a handset, a mobile phone, things of that nature. We were doing that at the early early stages of mobile telephony. So 
that that opportunity to make that jump was really based on you know your skill sets being applied in a different environment and that's why i was lucky to be able to get into that early on and as i was saying the ambidextrous piece was um soon after i joined the company about nine months in um, we were acquired and then i moved into a product development role and my first question or my point to my new boss was i'm not an engineer uh, I'm curious as to why you want to keep me going forward. I want to stay with the company. This is a great opportunity and very exciting opportunity. And his perspective was, well, first off, uh, in our business, you've got to be able to kill your children. Meaning if you've got an initiative that you want to stop, even though you mm-hmm. can't overinvest yeah. in it. And the other piece was that um, I think you'll be able to leverage your experience from the fact that you've been to Europe so many times because this is the standard is literally called GSM global system mobile as it is Mm -hmm. in French. And uh, I realized then as to, Oh, okay. I can look at the playbook for France telecom or orange telecom, which was in the UK uh, or Vodafone or any of the others that already have a two year advantage, first move advantage in coming to market look at those solutions and then being able to transfer them into our footprint, which was California, Washington, Nevada, and uh, Oregon at the time. And that company that I was working for then is called, was called Pacific Bell Mobile Services. Today, it's part of AT&T. Yeah. Wow. Well, you and I kind of share some overlap there because I worked for several years in wireless and actually was part of the AirTouch organization, which was kind of born out of the original formation, right, of those wireless companies. And I know just the the speed and the rate of innovation and opportunity and growth was just out of this world, right? Even thinking back to those oh, times. Right. Yes, and, exactly. And it was, yeah. And so prioritization, <laughs> back to your point of you've got part of the success was learning when to say no, because there was uh, just an unbelievable list of questions and opportunities and there had to be some discipline applied against that too to, to yeah. focus the resources. But yeah, yeah uh, but I'll also point out it was the opposite too. You know, I, I, there was a solution that um, you know back to who are your customers, for example, and my customers being in the corporate product development team, my customers were essentially the general managers of the subregions mm-hmm. that we operated in. So that was like in Lake Tahoe, that was Tahoe, or in Las Vegas, or in San Francisco, or Los Angeles, or Portland or Seattle, et cetera. And um, they were adamant about having what was called cut-through paging then. So if you remember back in the day, Nextel had the solution that it was essentially like acting like a walkie-talkie. Push a button and you could send a voice message off to somebody and have a dialogue that way. And um, it came upon me, the onus was, how, we can, how can we get this installed? How can we put this in place? Technologically, it wasn't that difficult. However, there was no, um, you know, we had ne- negative net present value analysis on the solutions. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm yeah. like, I can't present this, you know, and I even walked into the CEO. I was like, look, here's a challenge. I need to get, get a, a sense of the, uh, the politics of all of this back to, you know, political, non-political. It's yeah. not always what you think it is. And he's like, no, we're going to do that because we have to do that because our customers are demanding that. I'm like, okay, yeah. as yeah. long as it's good with you, then it'll be good with them. He goes, yep, not a problem. So uh, off you, off you went on that. So something I know you're also very passionate about is companies really having the courage 
to continue to stretch boundaries, right? Explore uncharted waters. What are some of the key pitfalls to avoid and what you think are the keys to then successfully achieving growth when you're in a, a, a nascent market? You know, I uh, back to our shared experience in the telecommunications space. Um, there's a term that has become a term of art. Reed Hoffman wrote a book called Blitzscaling. And the whole notion of blitzscaling in a phrase is instead of going from zero to one, if you're in a startup mode, think about going from zero to a billion. And, and I raise this because I was in a startup um 10 years before Mr. Hoffman wrote his great book. <laughs> and the, our, my model, uh, my motto was going global from the start in a startup that was all of about 15 people. And we had just received a first round funding from Mayfield, uh, which is a prominent venture capital firm in the Silicon Valley. And it was only for a million dollars. But um, of that million about 100,000 was allocated to me to be able to get on planes and talk to other mobile network operators all around the world because we knew that we would be able to leapfrog uh, our competitors who were just focusing on the North American slash U.S. market for this, what was called then an interoperability solution, meaning a way to send a text message into AirTouch, which was based on, now we're getting into the tech world, CDMA based mm -hmm. technology yeah. from the native GSM technology, which is where text messaging was, as I say, native to that technology. It wasn't in any of the other radio formats, as we call them. And um, that was an assertion of swinging for the fence. Uh, it was also an assertion of we can do this, and that's the model that we're going to pursue. You know, it's as much a mentality uh, because in many yeah. cases, yes, startups are really high risk enterprises, but then there's risk upon risk. And um, we could have easily flamed out in less than a year if we didn't have the right people, such as myself, that had already that prior exposure to the international telecommunications architecture and systems and business that we could then leverage and accelerate the adoption and accelerate the absorption in the, uh, in the embracing of this new technology that we were at the forefront of pushing. We weren't the only one, um, but at the end of the day, we were the one who um, won victory. And I say the end of the day, it was a five-year run. And at uh, the fifth year, we were acquired for about a half a billion dollars on around 120 million in revenues. So that experience, um, and the lessons taken from that um, are, um, you know, of great value and completely applicable because from one led to another. And I've spent the last 24 years now in the mobile telecommunications space as a result of that uh, first engagement in an enterprise and that second engagement in a startup and combining the two aspects uh, to maximize impact. So that 24 years, I mean, obviously so much has happened in our macro God, that, environment. You're yeah. depressing me now, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all about the numbers, Paul. Uh, let's yeah. get back to that. 24 years. Uh, how have you seen what is necessary for exceptional leadership evolving? And do you think that what it takes to be exceptional as a leader in a high growth environment is any different than, than maybe a non growth environment. How do you see that exceptional leadership? 
Sure. I, I do assert that there is a completely different leadership profile for somebody who's in, let's call it the run and gun environment of whether it's a startup or a scale up, um, you know, a hyper growth environment than somebody who's in an operating uh, mode that's more about um, consistency and reducing risk and, you know, the, uh, um, the unwillingness to take these kind of changes and manifest them in terms of the organization's strategy, the organization's direction. Um, and that's part of the appeal as you start to build this out. You know, it's, um, it's, it's so similar to raising a child in the context of you think that everything is going to be nice and smooth and it's going to be point to point sailing. But in reality, you are constantly tacking and constantly adjusting uh, to the terrain and the terrain can be the market terrain, the competitive terrain, the technology terrain. Uh, and that takes a, a different cat, a different breed of cat. Um, along the way, I've got two friends who are from graduate school and one recently retired as a two-star general in the United States Army. And I knew him when he was a captain. You know, this is now almost 30 years ago when we were both in graduate school. And that mentality of being a special forces guy, you know, he was a traditional Green Beret, as they were called. And then even beyond that, he was a pathfinder, um, heroic guy, too. He's Bronze Star winner. Um, point in all this is it takes a different perspective and a, a different adjustment uh, mm -hmm. in how you look at challenges and how you look at risk and how to be able to mitigate all the risk. It doesn't mean you eliminate the risk. You just find it yeah. to a level that you can operate within it, not necessarily manage it, but operate within it and be able to meet the objectives, you know, whatever the mission might be. And so, um, you know, that same type of mentality that is applied in these special and special doesn't mean they're exceptional. It's just different than the norm um, environments, as I say, like special forces officers. Um, same thing applies in the context of the business in, uh, environment and the nature of organizations and uh, the objectives that you have in terms of being able to, you know, find success in the marketplace. Well, one of the other key factors in being successful in the marketplace, certainly in a technology realm, is having an innovation engine, right, inside organizations. And, you know, history has shown us that at times of greatest disruption in market, those are usually times of some of the greatest innovation. From your perspective, Paul, what should leaders focus on if they're trying to ensure a healthy innovative culture inside of their teams, inside of their organizations? That's, uh, you know, that's the big question relative to innovation in being able to foster its development or even identify the opportunities. Um, you really have to have a perspective that is very wide-eyed, very broad, an aperture that is really wide, and also a high degree of creativity uh, and being able to connect the dots, but not necessarily connect the dots in sequence. You know, this is where some people have the ability to look over the horizon and not necessarily prognosticate, but see the direction. You know, it's like what Wayne Gretzky say, you know, you want to skate in towards the direction of where the puck is going yes. and not where it's been. 
And that's the same type of approach relative to innovation. Now you can engage in, uh, let's call it evolutionary innovation as opposed to revolutionary innovation. And, you know, to be honest, I, I think there's research out there that well over half or even three quarters of most innovation is evolutionary, meaning one step to the next step to the next step. And you can see how it's been built up and new factors are brought in, new elements. I mean, you know, if you think about uh, Leica cameras, for example, you know, Leica cameras have been around for about 110 years or so, is my recollection. And yet today, the technology that they use is different than they used 110 years ago. And yet they are still leading in terms of innovation development and applications of new technologies within the context of making exceptional photography. Same idea there in the context of you can leapfrog ahead like that interoperability solution that I talked about earlier, where we've found a way to be able to send text messaging beyond its native format, but we did it by sending it into an adjacent opportunity, right? Which was another radio, another mobile network operator. So we were both being exceptional in terms of something evolutionary, but also we were doing something exceptional that was revolutionary that hadn't been around in the marketplace before. Yeah, some great examples. And when we think about this opportunity and innovation from a global perspective, you've been this avid world traveler. You've tackled business problems in what approximately 80 countries. What are some of the most significant things you've taken from that global perspective? <laughs> Listen more, talk less. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's that's uh, and thank you for the recognition of of what I've been able to do. I think we're right now. Uh, you know, luck and timing always plays such a large factor. So I've been able to apply my trade on a global basis since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. And over the last 30 years, that means that we've all been rushing towards, let's call it writ large globalization. And then I was in a, in a technology business that requires globalization. And it's been the telecommunications networks that operate and support us as human beings has been described as the most complex complex organism that has ever been created by man because it is constantly changing and it is so omnipresent. And so that's been the conditions that I was able to operate in and take advantage of, you know, see the trends and recognize that if something was going on in the Philippines that I thought that's kind of interesting, you know, the fact that they have a higher messaging use case than any other country in the world at the time. And I'm trying to figure out why would that be the case and then realize, okay, well, 60% of the population at the time was young, younger than 25. Mm -hmm. um, that telecommunications was because of purchasing power parity and being in a, an emerging market uh, economy that more people were texting than using uh, voice mobile phone, mo uh, excuse me, voice calls. So it was a preponderance of messaging being utilized and not that much voice because again, you know, the nature of the, uh, the economy there. And so that was that dynamic being able to see that, but now we're not in a state of globalization anymore. I mean, we're to be reality of, of an invasion of a country by another that, uh, is 
really disrupting so much of the world in terms of five years from now. Do we all think that Russia is going to be part of the harmonious global infrastructure? Unlikely. <laughs> yeah. you know, and I've, yeah. I've been there about six times during the course of my career. So things are changing. Um, you know, as we speak, I'm not so sure we're going to fall back to that full on globalization, um, that we're going to have different types of scenarios in terms of how business is conducted relative to political conflict, um, might be going back to, you know, even 19th century dynamics in Europe and other places around the world. It's going to be completely multipolar. So that's a different dynamic than what I went through. But that was my observation and what I was able to take advantage of during those times. Now, you've had a very long and distinguished career. We've talked a lot about that. What is the single best piece of business advice that you have received during your career? Wow. Um, <laughs> the single. Um, well, I'll tell you, it started off from my days in the political world. I was working with a gentleman who was a, uh, a limited partner with the Cleveland Indians. So he was a, you know, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and he was probably at the time, maybe in his seventies, a great guy. I, I'm not going to give him his name out, but, um, he pointed out to me when I started talking about my interest in jumping into the private sector, he's like, you know, Paul, um, the political world is a great place to start a career like where you are. It's also a great place to end your career like where I am, but it's not a good place to have a career and that you have to go into the private sector. So that moved me into the private mm -hmm. sector. That was like the one piece of device that I was, I I found as actionable. Um, the, the clear one element that is so difficult. I, I mean, on my desk, uh, back to the military piece, I have what is called a challenge coin. Uh, and maybe your listeners know what a challenge coin is, but um, it is a uh, literally a large coin, maybe an inch and a half in diameter, that is issued by s specific military units. And they have a motto or some you know emblem on it or something like that. And it's a challenge coin in the context of two people from two you know. Uh, military people from the same unit or in the just same branch, whatever it might be, they challenge each other to have their coin. And if they don't have the coin, then they got to buy a round of drinks. And I have a challenge coin from a, a former British military officer that I met who was in their special air squadron, the Royal Air Force's special air squadron, which you know is kind of like the, the combination of SEALs and Green Berets. And on it, the motto is, who dares wins. And that has been one of the mottos or uh, points that I've followed in terms of the Lodestar. Uh, it, it encapsulates so much relative to risk and reward mm -hmm. and opportunity and purpose and who you serve. That's one of the things that I look at all the time in the technology world. Uh, as a salesperson and somebody who's been involved in a lot of marketing in the space, I always turn to a tech guy or let's say a deck that is too tech oriented. And I say, okay, this is great. You're telling me really well how it works, but you're not telling me who it serves. So go back and figure out who it serves, articulate whatever that, that opportunity might be 
how is the end consumer gaining a, a convenience out of all this? Because, you know, the reality of mobile telecommunications is we used to all have to be connected to a wall or a telephone booth and have to find one of those things. And now we are completely untethered. And as yeah. a result, we all see and benefit through convenience and capabilities of telecommunications of what we have today. I mean, even in the text messaging piece, and I know I'm running long, um, Today, you know, there aren't very many economic units that are measured in teens of trillions of production on an annualized basis. And yet, there are over teens of trillions of text messages sent with multi-purposes every year. And as a result of the pandemic, we see that that usage now has skyrocketed to about 30% annual growth rate is the projection for the next three to five years. Pre-pandemic, we were going around eight to 10% on a global mm -hmm. basis. Yeah, it's just a different trajectory. And, you know, you mentioned three powerful words, you know, back to that advice and Joe in the power of three words, but it comes back to mindset and it does come back to uh, that courage aspect, right? Of being bold, right? And, and being willing to dare, and but with a goal of ultimately winning. And so, great example. Love that. Yeah, there's another one. Fortune favors the audacious. So, you know, yes. it was a Roman emperor that mentioned that. Same concept, same yeah, idea. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about the future. You started uh, talking about some of the trends going there. But when you think about the future, Paul, what makes you optimistic? Uh so optimistic relative to the big picture or relative to the space that I'm in as an industry or both? Or I, 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 th I think both. There? Yeah. I think just uh, as you think about the, the world, uh, your world as, as we go forward, uh, what what is kind of getting you motivated, making you be optimistic for a bright future? Yeah. Every day, you know, there's always that opportunity. You know, happiness, if, if you will, is a choice. Um and not to say that people, because of bad circumstances, are going to be unhappy, but many people who have faced bad circumstances can be and demonstrate great happiness. Um, so the uh, degree of optimism is a sense that there are always changes that can be identified and taken advantage of and leveraged um, and harvested, if you will, uh, as I say, for the good, whether the public good in the political world or for uh, commercial perspectives in terms of driving revenues and opportunities as a result of that exchange of value. Um, in the world that I operate in on the technology basis, the mobile technology world, this new element, which is called communications platforms as a service, as I may have mentioned, is all about providing the right message, uses, uh, utilizing the right time and also the right platform to be able to benefit consumers. And that might be everything from looking to buy a new pair of jeans or that you've got to notify somebody of a health impairment or a health issue that needs critical care immediately and the means to be able to provide that. There's such a wide variety of capabilities that are now coming online. And then the next phase, which we probably both lived through when you were in the telecom space, goes back to that interoperability piece where we are lashing together SMS and voice and OTT messaging or email messaging and, and all these different functionalities based on human behavior and human intent and even human sentiment. So this is going to be a, a major game changer in terms of how we communicate 
And beyond, but uh, excuse me, to one last piece in all this is um, it may not be self-evident to the consumer, but it's going to be working behind the curtains to be able to make things easier for consumers and people everywhere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as we start winding up the conversation, do you have any other advice for companies that are looking to gain sustainable competitive advantage? Ah, wow. Again, I'm I'm a man of science, so I very rarely say these grand swath <laughs> comments. I don't even like to prognosticate in kind of like a two to three year window because so much changes, you know, just as an aside. Sure. I was once in a, um, well, inside a mobile network operator, I was told to uh, put together a 10-year business plan for a solution. I'm like, we've only been around for 18 months. This business has only been around for four years, meaning mobile telephony, and you want me to project out 10 years. <laughs> you got to be crazy. Um, you know, the the overall, ar- overall arching is, you know, never give up, so... That's it. It's just, it's it. uh, never, give up. never give up, hang in there and, uh, and, and, yeah. and ride it out. Yeah. Well, Paul, thanks again for joining in and really teaching all of us more around the power of ambidextrous leadership, what that means, and also how critical having a global perspective is uh, to be successful in today's intensely competitive marketplace. Thanks, Dan. It's been great chatting with you. Very much enjoyed it. And a reminder to everyone to make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.